0: Thank you so much for listening, so let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today we're in for a real treat and going to learn more about one of the reasons why cruciferous vegetables and broccoli in specific is so healthy for you and all the benefits that it can provide. And we're going to learn about that from probably the leading researcher in the entire world, who spent the last four decades of his life figuring these details out. So that's really one of the focuses of what I try to do with these interviews: is find the top people in the world to share essentially the highlights of their professional career so that you, you, know, you don't have to and you can, you can be basically be spoon fed all the results. So Dr. Jed Fahey is, out, is at the uh, Johns Hopkins Medical School where he's a, a nutritional biochemist and with broad training, training, extensive background in plant physiology, human nutrition, nutrition and uh, phytochemistry and nutritional biochemistry. And he's uh, currently uh, an assistant professor there. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Faye. Thank you for having me. All right, so um, I guess it's been a long career for you and just curious as to if you maybe can lay the foundation of how you started becoming interesting in these, these plant compounds that can have so many benefits that we'll discuss in a few minutes.
1: I sure can. It's a it's quite a long story, so you may want to cut some of it out uh, after you hear it. But um, I suppose it starts um, in uh, uh, in my high school days when I was going to become a marine biologist. I'm old enough so that I was of I was around at the time Jacques Cousteau was uh, coming on the scene. I wanted to be a marine biologist, and so I went actually got a master's degree in algal physiology or the the, the physiology of of algae, microalgae. And then there were no jobs available in, uh, in algal physiology, of course, when I got out of, when I got my master's degree in the late seventies. So I wound up going into agricultural biotechnology for about 15 years and worked for some big and some large companies, some big and some small companies. And uh, there were a lot of promises made. There were there was a lot of hand waving. There were um, all sorts of wonderful ways that these companies were going to feed the world uh, with plants. Um, and it, it didn't happen. And of course, pr- long-term projects are canceled when the, in these companies. And I wound up going to Johns Hopkins in uh, 1993, uh, joined the, uh, the group of Paul Talalay, a very famous um, Prevention scientist, a cancer biologist who worked in prevention. Um, and prevention was a fairly radical theory back back then, only 25 years ago. The idea that with with food, with nutrition, uh, plant foods primarily I sound a little bit like Michael Pollan perhaps, but eat eat food mostly plants. Um, And so that was a radical idea, but I was delighted to to join forces with with Professor Talalay. Um, And over the last 25 years, that's pretty much what we've done is we've studied, uh, we've tried to, as I like to say, put teeth in the recommendations that you should eat more plants, that your diet, uh, a diet uh, um, that that, uh, stressed or was primarily plant-based can be healthy for you. And we've tried to understand and bring to the public ideas about how and why eating plants and the phytochemicals in plants, phytochemicals just being compounds or chemicals that are present in plants, can enhance one's health span and allow one to live a longer life uh, in full vigor and health. And uh, perhaps then one day when we're... 100, 110, take your pick, maybe 120. Uh, We just don't wake up, but it's been a a damn fine ride until then.
0: Yes, indeed. So one of those phytochemicals, the one uh, that seems to be one of your primary focus is uh, sulforaphane. And that, of course, is not in broccoli, but it's produced from the glucosinolate glucoraphanin that's available in there. And maybe you can enlighten us and elaborate on the details of that and you know how the glucoraphanin is converted to thing through myrosinase.
1: Sure. Um, so glu- glucoraphanin is a, and all glucosinolates, in fact, are phytochemicals that are essentially inert. Uh, they're they're not very active, and they're present in vacuoles, little 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 bags, little uh, uh, bags within plant cells, and in a number of species. Uh, including all of the cruciferous vegetables and um, notably a plant called Moringa oleifera. Um, I've done a lot of work in Moringa over the years and I'd love to circle back and talk about that because it also has these compounds. But glucosinolates um, are water soluble and they don't do much for the human body or the plant probably for that matter, except store sulfur. When we as a predator, Um, or a bug, a worm, a caterpillar, uh, a beetle, uh, or even a bacterial or fungal infection, when we break plant cells, when we lyse them, um, these bags of glucosinolates open up and spill their guts into the rest of the plant tissue. Um, And then there are enzymes called myrosinase, which are present in um, the same plant cells and certainly the same plant tissues And those enzymes go to work on the glucosinolates and form compounds called isothiocyanates. Those isothiocyanates are biologically active, and they act as feeding deterrents. They act as toxins to insects, and and many of them are bactericidal to varying degrees. So, as you might imagine, they repel the nasty bug or the bacterial infection or the fungal invasion of that plant. That's what they were, uh, evolutionarily, that's what they were designed to do. We, and I give Paul Talley a great credit for uh, realizing this 25 years ago, uh, we as human beings repurpose those compounds. Um, and what they do is that, that they, uh, these isothiocyanates, when we ingest them, they uh, trigger or they induce uh, various protective enzymes in our body's cells. And so we can actually uh, n- unconsciously utilize these plant compounds, these plant defensive compounds, to uh, ratchet up or gear up our, our, ex- our endogenous defense mechanisms.
0: I mean, and I, I, I'm assuming that you're referring to the NRF2 pathways, which. Uh Became popularized when you first started studying this, and uh, is that the one you're referring to?
1: That, that's one of them, certainly. That's the primary one that uh, that uh, was discovered by uh, folks here in, at Johns Hopkins and um, in Japan, uh, uh, Masi Yamamoto and his group um, now at um, in Tohoku and Sunday University. Um, Tom Kentzler, uh, Cheyenne Biswal, Paul Talalay, John Hayes in Dundee, Scotland, Albana dinkova kostova really a fairly small group of scientists uh, was looking for, among other things, what the heck this, these mm-hmm. isothiocyanates or, the, or sulforaphane trigger in the human body. And they uh, mapped out this NRF2 pathway, which is highly responsive to isothiocyanates and which upregulates a whole host of antioxidant um, and other protective enzymes. Interestingly, we can come back to this, but interestingly, sulforaphane and moringan from, from the plant Moringa that I mentioned, and a number of other isothiocyanates, also um, uh, damp down the pro-inflammatory uh, uh, NF-kappa-B response um, in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may actually have an effect on the heat shock response, which has to do with protein folding and, and, and rescue of proteins from damage. And there is a, a rather daunting list of, bio- of beneficial biological activities that these isothiocyanates have. But Dr. Mercola, you are, you're correct. The NRF2 pathway is sort of the key pathway that uh, that we started looking at and that um, is, is certainly a primary defense uh, defensive mechanism that's upregulated.
0: I'm curious. It sounds in your story that the NRF two pathway was cat. The discovery of that pathway was was catalyzed by the search for how sulforaphane worked. Is that true?
1: I, I think it's fair to say that it was catalyzed by by some of the early work that the Talalay lab and and others uh, were doing on uh, chemoprotection or chemoprevention. Uh, take your pick of those two words. I think chemo prevention has become more popular. Although we, our center goes by the the acronym chemo protection. Um, so anyway, uh, I'd, 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 well, I'd,
0: that, I did not know that, but it, it is a massively important pathway. One that most physicians and clinicians and primary care people are not really very familiar with. It's recently been popularized. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that, what it does, because it's so profoundly important for optimizing our physiology.
1: Yeah. So, so I mean, it's it's important because what happens is um, this this is a uh, this is a nuclear transcription factor which is found in the in the cytoplasm of the cell, and when molecules like sulforaphane, uh, and there there are a whole host there, there, there's actually a large number of families of chemicals um, that upregulate this this system. But the NRF2 molecules in the cytoplasm, it's actually tethered there uh, by a chaperone protein by the by that goes by the acronym of keep one mm-hmm. um, And then uh, uh, there is a conformational change in keep one It's a di- it's a dimer. Um, that conformational ch- and I'm I'm simplifying it. I'm not the molecular biologist who discovered this pathway, of course, but um, there's a conformational change and NRF2 um, is released from that that molecular tether, if you will, and it migrates to the nucleus, goes to the nucleus, and uh, binds to what's what's known as an antioxidant response element. Um, That then allows the transcription of a whole suite of... uh, antioxidant and and, uh, chemoprotective genes, which go on to allow proteins to be formed. Many of them are protective enzymes. Um, And we have an assay that was, again, developed close to 30 years ago now here, um, which we routinely use, which is sort of a a signal that this pathway is being upregulated. But there's a whole host of enzymes that's coordinately upregulated that are protective so um so we in our scientific writings we frequently talk about uh compounds like sulforaphane being a um, an indirect antioxidant and you didn't ask about that but but before i forget to explain that it's an important concept because what happens is when you upregulate these antioxidant enzymes um you you Allow for protection against oxidative stress in those cells in which the or the tissues in which the, these enzymes are upregulated. These are these enzymes are rather long lasting. In other words, they hang around in the cell and the tissue for a matter of certainly hours, in most cases days, a few days, uh, maybe longer than that. Um, and so we refer, for example, for, to sulforaphane and isothiocyanates as indirect and as long-lasting antioxidants because they crank up the activities of these antioxidant enzymes. In and of themselves, though, these molecules like sulforaphane are not direct antioxidants like, for example, vitamin C um, uh, and many of the other um, antioxidants that folks are probably familiar with, um, which do their thing protect against reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species, and then they're gone, and they have to be replaced or replenished. So, thank you for that explanation. Uh, I'll shut up and let you ask another question. I'm sorry, I'm rambling on a bit here, but uh, but uh,
0: I, I should stop and catch a breath more often. All right. Well, that's okay. I just wa- I just wanted to expand on that uh, in the clarification in that the activation of NRF2 is generally believed to be hormetically controlled, and that is a small bit of something that may be, uh, a large bit of a dose that may be harmful, smaller dose may be beneficial, like the sulforaphane. But, But I think even more importantly, is that unlike an antioxidant, which indiscriminately suppresses Free radicals, and some of them may be very beneficial free radicals, which is why most of the studies that looked at antioxidant supplementation don't seem to provide a benefit in longevity or health span. But things like sulforaphane do that in a way that releases or stimulates the uh, activation of the antioxidant response elements in a way when it's only needed. So is that true? And it can, if it's so, can you expand on that?
1: Well, I mean, it's true, but but I think one has to view things like sulforophane and and these isothiocyanates as as compounds that. Um, so yes, they, they are hormetic and and too too little won't have an effect, or may have an alternative effect. Too much certainly could have a deleterious effect. So um, okay. we don't know enough about the dose yet. We've been working mm. on that. We can come back to that. Um, we're we are suggesting to the extent that anybody asks our opinion, although, of course, we're not prescribing, but we, we can suggest that um, a reasonable dose, which we know from clinical studies now, uh, may be having a pharmacodynamic effect, meaning it may cause um, induction of, uh, of these enzymes. It may even affect various symptoms. But we, we, we can approximate a dose based on what um, people who eat a lot of broccoli, for example, would eat, or in the case of moringa, um, and this is not something a lot of Americans are familiar with, but people who eat eat moringa regularly, and this is a tropical vegetable. uh, um, So we can, based on our knowledge of the chemistry, we can measure the amount of glucosinolates in these plants. Um, We can estimate, and, and we can use the epidemiologic literature to estimate about how much People would get if they ate these plants regularly. Excuse me. We have horns and sirens in the background here. I'm talking from a hospital. Yeah. So, so I'm afraid we're not quite smart enough as a group of scientists that study this stuff yet to to really be to be able to prescribe a dose um, uh, really well. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yes, there is. One can have too much, and one can have too little. Not sure I fully answered the question that you had, but
0: no, no that, that's fine for the hormesis, But I'm wondering about the um, the activation of the ARE transcription fa- as a transcription factor. Is is it modulated by the need for anti- antioxidant or reduction of oxidative stress, or is it just indiscriminate, like swallowing vitamin C and vitamin E? Well, I, th-
1: I, I think to a degree, to a degree, it's um, to a degree the proteins that are transcribed from that. Up genetic, uh, from that uh, chemical, rather, upregulation of genes is, um, there's feedback on that to a degree. So, for example, if you upregulate um, a glutathione transferase or um, one of the various so-called antioxidant enzymes, and there's a large oxidant stress uh, present in that tissue, um, then you're going to uh, to use a very... Unscientific term. You're going to wear out that enzyme. You're going. It's going to crank through its its useful lifetime and be used up. Um, this is. Uh, but again, this is this is sort of in direct uh, opposition or contrast to a direct on, antioxidant. So you give vitamin C. It's taken up. It spikes in the blood very quickly. It's used up or it's not. But it's flushed from the body in the urine within a matter of minutes to hours. So. Um, you're, t- if you give too much, you're creating expensive urine, um, and uh, you know it's active for a short period of time. When you upregulate the antioxidant enzymes, they're they're active for a fairly lengthy period of time, as I say, hours or days, and then those enzymes go away. So dosing with sulforaphane would be, and we think it is. We can't prove this to you chapter and verse yet, but um, Dosing with something like sulforaphane can be done every day, perhaps every other day, perhaps every three days even, because what you're doing is cranking up activity and production of enzymes that are going to hang around the body for a little while before they go away.
0: Okay, we'll get back to that. I I just want to clear clear up some of the other benefits that uh, sulforaphane has. And you mentioned, and I really wasn't aware of until I listened to a presentation by One Of your postdocs, Brian Kornblatt, who I list, uh, we both were attending the same event, and uh, he mentioned the upregulation of uh, actually, he mentioned too that you were, he was going to go to med school, but you were responsible for getting him to go and (laughs) do this type of work, so uh, you were a major influence in his life. But one of the things he mentioned with respect to sulforaphane was the upregulation, you mentioned it earlier, is the upregulation of uh, heat shock proteins. Yes. and, and you mentioned that it is responsible for unfolding, but I just want to expand on that because it's, it's a one quick sentence that you mentioned, but most people are completely unaware of the need for refolding your proteins. So I, I, I looked at it, did a little more reading in some of the studies, and I was just astounded to find that one third of the proteins that we make, one third are misfolded. They're misfolded and they don't work. So you definitely need things like heat shock proteins uh, to refold them. And, and the heat shock protein also, of course, has sort of as a, 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 a cousin to autophagy in that it can target severely misfolded proteins to be destroyed and, and recycled uh, if, if they're beyond repair. So it's an important thing. And is there anything else you'd like to add to that to help us fully appreciate the benefit? This, this is one of the major benefits that, that uh, the glucosinolites like uh, sulforaphane do provide, or actually the isothiocyanates provide. Uh,
1: well, if you'll allow me to go off on a slight tangent, I, I will I will answer your question uh, indirectly. I, so um, so yeah, you're 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 right. The heat shock the heat shock pathway or the heat shock response is 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 extremely important, and these these uh, protein chaperones are. Uh, certainly biologically very important. Again, I use the caveat, and I can say this about everything, I'm not the expert on heat shock.
0: (laughs) You're good (laughs) enough.
1: um, A mile wide and an inch deep, right? Um, So the interesting story that I want to tell you though is that, uh, so yes, sulforaphane and Moringa from Moringa and other isothiocyanates uh, do appear to upregulate do upregulate the heat shock response. About 10 years ago, a little bit less, uh, Dr. Andrew Zimmerman, uh, who at the time was at Harvard and the, the Mass General, came to Paul Talley and, uh my, my mentor here at Hopkins, and said something to the effect of, he said it more elo- eloquently, but something to the effect of, hey, Paul, said, you know, we, we've been looking at autism, he's an, he's an expert in autism, and he said, you know, Interestingly, kids who some kids who have autism and get a fever, um, their symptoms resolve, they get much better. And when the fever goes away, when the fever resolves, their symptoms come back. And he said, Hey, Paul, he said, Your group and others have shown that sulforaphane upregulates the heat shock response. Wouldn't it be cool if? These two things were connected, and if sulforaphane might have an effect on autism. So that's a reach, but it turns out that, that in uh, 2007, uh, Dr. Zimmerman uh, and, and others published a small study, in, a clinical study, in which they showed that in fact, um, uh, that they, they codified, as far as I'm aware for the first time, what many psychiatrists and many physicians who treat kids with autism um, had known, and that's the, this fact that that um, th- this this um, fever effect it wasn't called the heat shock effect; it was called a fever effect. Um, and so, indeed, we uh, raised some uh, private funds, some philanthropic money. Uh, this was not something the NIH was about to fund. Um, and we did a study with Dr. Zimmerman. It was published in 2014 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And we had, I believe it was 44, uh, these were all males, uh, 44 guys. Um, And two thirds of them got sulforaphane and one third got placebo. And this was for 18 weeks, orally, daily. We made the sulforaphane uh, here in my lab, and we actually had to go out to uh, Oregon freeze dry to to freeze dry large amounts of it for this trial. and then after 18 weeks of treatment, everybody everybody went back to went on placebo, or uh, so they, they stopped getting sulforaphane. and symptoms were monitored at the beginning, uh, three times in the during the trial, um, then at the end at 18 weeks, and then at 22 weeks after the the placebo period had gone, and. Quite remarkably to some, not a surprise I guess to those of us who were anxious to to see if this worked, but um, there was a dramatic uh, and significant substantial uh, reduction in symptoms of of autism, many of the symptoms measured by the scales that physicians, caregivers use and the scales that parents use to evaluate autism severity in some more than half of the children. those symptoms came back. So in other words, the the mean scores of the sulforaphane group came back more or less to baseline um, after they went on placebo. And we actually, so that that study was published. We actually had a follow-up study. Uh, We followed the, I should say, we followed those individuals for another three years, and it turns out that almost all of them Uh, their caregivers or parents had put them on some sort of a commercial sulforaphane supplement. It turns out that many of them reported continuing and continuous um, reduction in symptoms after that time period. So we now have, I shouldn't say we now have, I'm not the principal investigator on any of them because I'm not a psychiatrist, but we have five uh, follow-up studies that were done, one with about 120 Uh, children, male and female in China, Um, another one with the same group, uh, Dr. Zimmerman's group, which has now moved to the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and I hope to meet with him next month. to. We're going to go over some of the data, which is uh, the trial has wrapped up, the intervention is wrapped up, so um, we'll be looking at that. And then one was published already, Um, it was a small trial without a placebo control. The University of California, San Francisco, and then there, there, there are two others um, that are wrapping up or underway. So we're really excited to see the, the clinical follow up to that first study. And this all stemmed, to get back to your original question, I said I'd, I'd diverge. Um, it all stems from the idea that maybe this is a heat shock response which is involved. And we are monitor. we are looking for biochemical molecular markers of the heat shock response um, in at least some of the studies, that the follow-up studies. They were, they were not followed in that first study, which was published.
0: Yeah, it's great to do the studies, but it, when you have a severely impacted group like those parents who have autistic children, they're likely not going to be continuing to use an intervention unless it works. So most likely it does provide benefit. And I'm curious, does the, because infrared near infrared soda specifically are really noted to increase the production of heat shock proteins? And is it similar to what sulforaphane does? Is it the same protein response? Because I know there's a wide variety of different heat shock proteins. And do you actually get a fever or an elevated temperature, as you alluded to, when you're taking sulforaphane? No,
1: no you don't get it. You don't get a fever or an elevated temperature when you take sulforaphane. The, the idea is that, that you may be. Independent of of a uh, a temperature response, mm-hmm. you may be inducing, uh, or you are, you do induce uh, some of these proteins in the body. So it's, I, I suppose, the best way to look at it is as an alternative uh, trigger mechanism. Mm-hmm. I'm not well enough versed in the liter- the sauna literature. I have friends who, uh, I mean, I know this is a this is a hot, time. this is a hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry.
0: Pun intended. Uh,
1: pun intended,
0: right? Right. Oh. Okay. Well, that's okay. That's fine. But it, I, I was just curious, and thought you might have some insights on in that because it it really is such an important re, uh, explanation as to why this molecule provides such a good benefit. Now, let's get back to the timing, as you mentioned, because I think it's an important topic. And I'm not, you know, first of all, the other one of the other benefits before we get to the timing is that yeah. it. it also facilitates detoxification. It upregulates the, some of the enzymes in the cytochromes in the liver to help your body uh, remove toxic molecules from your body. Right. So, typically, that is best that the detox phase is best activated if you divide normal human physiology into two phases. One is autophagy, or is the repair and the breakdown of tissue, uh, and then catabolism, where you're rebuilding tissue. So, the, it would seem that activation of those detox enzymes would be best done in autophagy periods where you're not eating, uh, especially even better in longer fasts. And I'm wondering if you looked at it with respect to the timing and the cycling, because like everything, there's probably an optimal time to get this molecule.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more, and the answer the short answer to your question, I'll see if I can give you a short answer this time. Is we 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 ain't done it, buddy. <laughs> it, it hasn't been done, um, as far as I'm aware. Uh, th- these, you know, it's interesting when you do these these sorts of clinical trials with a molecule like sulforaphane, um, which uh, certainly early on was hard to get funded because it was viewed as a and is a plant compound. It's not supported by a drug company because it's not patented. It's a, it's a natural compound. So when you do a trial and you find uh, and you ha- have a successful outcome of some sort, even if it's just uh, successfully following it in the blood and urine, you, um, the next person or the next group that does a study with the same compound tends to use the same dose the same amount, the same dosing regimen, because God forbid, if they, use, if they did something radically different like delivered it during a, you know, a fasting period when you didn't, um, they might not replicate the results and that would be the end of clinical trials with those compounds. So we started the trials that we, the, the very simple uh, pharmacokinetics or, or, or avail- bioavailability trials that we st- started doing we, we almost always did, um, on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, um, delivered with a, with a bottle of water. And, uh, then people were allowed to go out and have breakfast after they left the clinic. Um, and a lot of the trials that have followed up have gone that way. Mm -hmm. I started doing um, some trials in China with Tom Kensler and, uh, Tom uh, is the colleague who was here at Hopkins for many years and now is at the uh, Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center in Seattle. And the, the first trials that we did there, we again, we made the broccoli sprout extract uh, and then um, delivered every day at the local village doctor's uh, uh, house, actually. Um, gave a bottle of water so they could, they could chase the dose And then in in the case of most of those studies, we've done them in the evening, um, and then people went home and had dinner. So that was less on a fasting, in a fasting state. But certainly we haven't looked at at, uh, intermittent fasting or long-term fasting. uh, That
0: that is interesting, and thank you for your honesty in that and sharing the truth, which is the studies haven't been done. So, But there's probably no one in the entire world who's more knowledgeable on topic than you are. And from your Depth of understanding of the biochemistry and the pharmacokinetics. It does it seem to make sense rather than to give it in the morning when you're just starting to eat and activating the catabolic phase to give it at night, or the last right after the last meal in the day, and hopefully you're not going to eat for another 16, 18 hours, or even on a, a more a longer fast, and to not take it when you're trying to be in a catabolic phase and building muscle tissue.
1: I honestly don't know the best way to answer that question because I think one could make the argument that if one gives it in the morning um, on an empty stomach, as one is starting to go about one's daily business and being exposed, for example, to um, air pollution uh, if one is working outside or to sun if one is working outside. UV light is a is a carcinogen, as we all know, as well as a, a, a blessing for vitamin D. Um, so. Uh, one might argue that if the work that sulforaphane does in the body, the upregulation of protective enzymes uh, happens rapidly, and it does, um, that maybe it's better to give it first thing in the morning um, to protect against the insults of the day. Because certainly when you're snug as a bug in a rug in your in your bed, uh, you're not getting bombarded with ultraviolet irradiation, and you're certainly not changing your reactive oxygen inhalation uh, profile the way that you would during a working day, uh, in, you know, in a city. But um,
0: Well, the counter argument could be that these chemical, the, at least from the chemical exposure, that they're going to stick around and potentially yep. be stored in your, in your fat cells. And in that case, you, you want to get rid of them and you do that during a detox phase. So. It it may seem better, but I don't know the pharmacokinetics because you you alluded to the fact that it was upregulated for maybe up to three days. In which case, it's somewhat irrelevant uh, as to the timing. But it it just seems to me counterintuitive unless you try to symptomatically treat a serious problem like autism to give it every day because I don't know it may be develop a partial resistance to it, or it's just you know it's not necessarily the thing that you would find in nature eating these glucosinolates every day so you so you're correct i i, I think your
1: point is well taken and um I, I certainly would agree that that one doesn't need to again from an evolutionary perspective people probably didn't eat the same food all the mm-hmm. time every day um we in fact in in uh, tom Kensler my colleague that i mentioned before has been uh, a big proponent of intermittent dosing or, or or not daily dosing and, and hopefully we'll be looking at that in china um in one of our one of his studies there so i think you again you reminded us of something that i said earlier and that's that you upregulate these protective enzymes and they're around in the body for a period of days that's absolutely true and they're able to go to work um, f- uh, I you know either stage the the mm-hmm. anabolic or the or the um, anabolic uh, stage, the autophagy stage. Um, I guess the other thing that I should mention though and this is reassuring is this is again with Kensler's work in China um, we showed that prolonged uh, this was three months I believe uh, 84 days and this is published prolonged daily dosing with sulforaphane, did not lead to a fatiguing of that NRF2 response. It did not fatigue or reduce the responsiveness of these detoxification enzymes. Um, mm-hmm. So that, I think, is an important distinction. You, you don't wear the system out, Okay. Um, but I take your point. you don't- No, that's
0: good to know. I wasn't aware of that. I would assume that that was a potential risk, but thanks for confirming that it doesn't appear to be. Yep, yep. So I'm really curious. Because uh, when you op- to open the discussion about this, you had mentioned, quite rightfully so, that these uh, glucosinolates in the plants are essentially poisons that the plant uses to protect itself from predation. And, I, and I, I, I'm quite certain that the, the answer is going to be the studies haven't been done, but with your breadth of knowledge on this topic, I'm wondering if you have any guesses as to how in the heck these poisons evolved to provide such a beneficial response in humans. I mean it doesn't seem to be a direct correlation as to why that would happen.
1: Well look I mean I, I, I think yeah so that's the, that's a question I suppose I should stop and think about and not give you a snap answer to but I mean um, you can you can on one hand live a pretty bland, life with probably a normal lifespan by by existing totally on soylent and i'm not putting in a commercial plug for this recent product but you know it doesn't have any phyto or it didn't anyway when i first saw it appear it didn't have any phytochemicals it's just protein carbohydrate fat and all the vitamins that theoretically you need or you can eat a diet rich in plants now what are plants i mean i i would turn the question around on you a little bit i guess and say what are these plants offering? And then I would turn to Michael Pollan and I wish I could remember, I've got to memorize the quote from his book. She says during you know the millennia of evolution, um, while we humans were busy mastering locomotion, plants were, were, were nefariously producing all of these, these phytochemicals to protect themselves since they're rooted in one place. Pollan said it much more eloquently than I certainly did. But I mean, all plants, that, that you put in your mouth are going to be providing phytochemicals that in most cases, your body, I mean, they may have direct detoxification antioxidant functions like.
0: Like sulforaphane or, or glucoraphanin.
1: Well, or flavonoids and anthocyanins and so on. Sure. Or um, or they may be compounds like sulforaphane. There are a ton of them that you eat mm-hmm. if you eat a plant-rich diet. So we know, so evolutionarily, I. I suppose I can't give you a good answer, but, but we do know from work that my colleague Yushan Zhang did um, 20 years ago, more than that, is that when a cell, one of your body's cells, sees sulforaphane, it takes it up, it's rapidly taken up, it's concentrated in the cell to a couple hundred times the concentration it sees in the, in the, in the blood, in the interstitial tissue. And then it's conjugated with glutathione rapidly and it's dumped back out of the cell unceremoniously and quickly. Mm -hmm. So in the process, we know that the cell, that the NRF2 pathway and all these other pathways are upregulated, but it is viewed as a toxin. It is detoxified and it's that, and perhaps it's that detoxification mechanism, that cranking up of glutathione, which is the body's most prevalent antioxidant, um, that is, is, that's doing the good things. That's the direct antioxidant, which it's which mm-hmm. regulating. And then those molecules have
0: a chance to stay around long after sulforapane's gone. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, yeah I, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's many people and clinicians who recommend supplemental glutathione, and I think that's a mistake. Not only is it poorly absorbed and expensive, but it's far better to have your body make it than to take it exogenously. So I think molecules like sulforaphane make a lot of sense if you want to upregulate glutathione. So, uh, you know, that, that's sure. good. But what, if you could just comment on the point, because I've heard you mention in other interviews, that uh, which is surprising that sulforaphane is the most potent natural activator of the NRF2 pathway compared to any other glucosinolate or gluco, uh, or isothiocyanate rather, or, and uh, any other natural compound. I mean, there are synthetics that may be more... Potent, but not, nothing beats sulforaphane.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm happy to comment on that, and I and I have to walk that back a little bit. So w- we said that, and I said that many years ago when we were first working on sulforaphane. Um, it turns out, and we just published this. Uh, I guess I guess it was last year, within the last year. Mm-hmm. There's another there's another compound called Moringa from ah okay moringa, uh, moringa. yeah. <laughs> And so you can you can have a contest between isothiocyanates, and how do you how do you do that? Well, you could do it in clinical trials, but that's expensive, and I suppose you could make the case that it's uh, ethically uh, uh, perhaps taboo. Well, I, I wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to have a contest in a clinical trial, but you can, sure. you can do use cultured cells, and you can have all sorts of contests. So a head-to-head contest of sulforaphane and a, a whole slew of other isothiocyanates um moringan the compound it's called 4 ram it's called 4l alpha ram oxy benzyl perenacyl benzyl glucosinolate or is pretty
0: good but, but otherwise known as moringan otherwise known as moringan
1: is um, more potent than sulforaphane in some assays in some cell lines and for example we we first saw this when we had a head-to-head contest with helicobacter, trying to kill helicobacter, which causes ulcers in stomach and can cause stomach cancer. And we saw that moringan from, from moringa oleifera, the tropical tree, was every bit as potent in killing helicobacter as sulforaphane was. And those two were were better than the others. So when you look at different cell culture in vitro assays, moringan and sulforaphane go back and forth. Interesting. And Interesting. I love that because you know more sulforaphane comes primarily from broccoli sprouts uh, or market stage broccoli. They're a tempered zone crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in rich Americans, compared to the rest of the world and, and Europeans um, and Australians, can buy broccoli sprouts and can buy supplements. There's a as you everybody knows, there's a large swath of the world, mostly in the tropics. Who can't afford these things? Mm-hmm. Certainly, who you wouldn't recommend growing broccoli sprouts to because of the mm-hmm. climate and the water quality. And moringa is a tree, and it's grown it's grown all throughout the tropics where people, many people, can't even afford you know a, a course of antibiotics when they need them. Um, so this quote, "food is a drug," I think is is very powerful and is something we really shouldn't ignore. So. Uh, moringa is being viewed as a superfood in the U.S., and certainly I think it's great to add to your diet, and people do, but in the tropics where it's grown, um, it's, its phytochemical punch, moringan, um, is really something that I think shouldn't be ignored, and we're, we're trying to get funding to look at moringan um, in,
0: in a, or moringa um, in autism, much in the same way we looked at Interesting and th- that is a an, an aspect of research that many people may not realize there's a lot of information about so out there primarily because of your lab and many others who have really done the, the, the hard work over the last decades or so but there's 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 500 cruciferous vegetables moringa being one of them and not as much work has been done in any, any of the others so there may be benefits that have yet to be discovered just because the research isn't there and, and that's understandable because there's really not much financial benefit in the long run because these are natural chemicals and they can't be patented.
1: Couldn't, again, you're, you're singing my song. And, and I mean, it, I think it falls, uh, I, I don't think, I know that it falls to people like you um, to get the word out to the consuming public who's not gonna read the, the, the highly technical science um, and it, com- it comes also, I think it's, it's partly on the shoulders of epidemiologists to try to do better. I mean, they're doing a good job at it, but to, to do even better to uncover some of the connections between... Um, sorry, that's... That's okay. ...my siren in the background again. To uncover some of the, some of the connections between the, the plants we eat, the vegetables we eat in particular, fruits and vegetables. Um, and the diseases we don't get, or the, or the, the syndromes we don't, we don't uh, come down with. Um, so, uh, you know, you mentioned the cruciferous vegetables and the isothiocyanates. It's, I think it, it, it's worth stressing here. So there's moringa, which is actually technically not a cruciferous vegetable, but it's, it's related and has mm-hmm. those compounds. There's broccoli. Arugula is another good one that has an isothiocyanate
0: that's quite potent. Horseradish. It's also the highest plant source of nitrates. Yes, yes, even higher than spinach, right? Well, higher than beets. I'm, I I yeah. I wouldn't touch spinach with a 10-foot pole because of its oxalate. Oxalates,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so there's arugula, there's watercress, there's a different. They all have different isothiocyanates. Mm-hmm. Mustard seed and mustard certainly. Um, and and those we know, for example, my colleague Yushin Zhang looked at. Uh, um, bladder cancer and uh, and the the compound in mustard seed. Um, there's a fairly short list um, if you want to go to the cruciferous vegetables and and find those which are good sources of isothiocyanates. So, so I've mentioned a few. Uh, there's some other cresses. Then you start looking at things like like um, Brussels sprouts and cabbage, and they have compounds called indoles in them. These are indole glucosinolates also. Those indole glucosinolates are actually converted to different compounds, not isothiocyanates. And the jury's still out. It's sort of of mixed, but the jury's still out on the benefit of those indole compounds and what they're turned into. We can talk about that another time or or later or whatever.
0: Well, I'm curious about Moringa. I, I started to grow it in my backyard and you know, it's, it's a real scraggly tree, I mean it's very thin and tall and, and not very significant, but the, I'm wondering from a pragmatic perspective how you harvest this thing, because I just tore it up because I couldn't figure out how to harvest it. The leaves are so small, they're smaller than your fingertip, and I mean, it would take you like an hour to get any significant amount of leaves. So yeah. is there any strategy to, to, to harvest this into useful quantities?
1: yeah so so i assume you grew it in uh florida or california florida florida so uh i mean remember it's a tropical tree so the subtropics or whatever you call southern florida counts um but then it dies off in the winter so it's not its optimal range right right so uh, in Probably the fact that it's a scraggly, not very appealing looking tree is one of its uh, one of its blessings. So it hasn't been harvested to death. But um, it's uh, it's also extremely fast growing in the It mm-hmm. uh, grows 10 to 20 feet in, a, in its first year. Um, short answer is, in areas where it's grown as a tree, uh, you, you grow it, you strip off the leaves and, and let it grow back, and sort of do that in, in the Philippines, and in Africa, and India, and other places. Um, another way that people grow it-
0: But it seems to be hard to strip off the leaves without getting some of the stem in, and no one wants to eat the stem, and, or do you just put it in a blender?
1: You just put it in a blender or you strip the leaves from the
0: stems, and it's it, yeah, it's a little difficult. Um, it's tedious. I mean, because the leaves are so small, I and mean, it's like you've been there for hours to get enough leaves to be of any significance.
1: That's true. That's true. So, so I, I never, I, well, of course, I live in the, in the temperate zone, so I, I tried to grow it one year and when it died off in Baltimore in the winter, I stopped trying. Although we've grown one in our lab, um, in, our, in the window of our lab that's been growing for about 20 years. Um, so the way you do it is you buy it. Um, y- you buy it from uh, someone that response responsibly and sustainably has it harvested in the- okay. That's
0: uh, the way to do it. Okay.
1: Well, well, I mean, I think in this country, that's the way, and, and as you probably are aware, I'm on the advisory scientific advisory board for Cooley Cooley, which is a company that, that does sustainably harvest it. I've never asked, uh, Lisa, my, my friend there, um, to take me to Africa and show me how it's harvested, but I, I presume that they do harvest from uh, growing trees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wanted to tell you the the, the, the the cooler way to do it, the interesting way to do it, which we're trying to bring to the temperate zone is to grow it very densely. And I have colleagues in, in the Congo who who are doing this. You, you plant the seeds very close to each other they grow up, and within a few weeks, you've got plants. Within six to eight weeks, you've got maybe waist high, knee knee high to waist high plants, and it looks for all the world like a crop of, uh, to use your favorite your analogy to your favorite vegetable, spinach. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, they are they do have those small penny sized leaves, but then they go through, and it's and you get a huge harvest from an acre or from a you know from a square footage of land. Ah, lemon.
0: okay, interesting.
1: Yeah, and they just, they can actually chop them down and let them regrow, and it's called coppicing, I think, and they keep on letting them regrow, and it's a it's a highly efficient way of harvesting.
0: I am going to give it a try. I'll let you know if it works, because I've got about a, an acre of land that I'm experimenting with, and I can definitely do, dedicate some more to um, moringa.
1: Well, I, I have to tell you, since, since you're in Florida, go to Echo in North Fort Myers, Florida, mm-hmm. It's ECHO, it's an acronym for the Educational Concern for Hungers Organization, and they have a demonstration tropical farm. They have a lot of Peace Corps volunteers and missionaries, I think, that come and learn how to do tropical agriculture there, and they are one of, the, one of the groups that I first talked to about growing moringa, and they're very, uh, you enjoy going there, it's probably close to you.
0: Well, yeah, actually I live on the East coast, but my office is on the West coast and not very far from, it's very close to Fort Myers actually. Yeah. So I'll be actually be there next week or in two weeks. So. It's worth a visit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. That that has been, it, you, you've gotten most of the questions I have. I mean, you're such a wealth of knowledge. Um, is there something that we left out or something that you'd like to emphasize because there's so much valuable in- insights that you have i just want to i want to make sure we're we're getting you know the benefit of your decades of of research
1: well um i can't say that i can't say that there's something that i've been just just dying to to talk about you've you've touched on a lot of the uh i think the points that that need to be touched on i think. I mean, it's 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 so important to try to translate this highly technical science and get it in a palatable format that the average consumer, um, uh, you know, will uh, that that will that it will resonate with, because we somehow or another, those of us who work in the in the biomedical sciences and the healthcare sciences we have to get the message across that mm-hmm. healthier diets and healthier lifestyles are critical um, because we're killing ourselves with this processed food uh, glut. Um,
0: yeah, there is one area that I think we should go into some details before we, t- we sign off, and that is, and we touched on it, but, but you, I think you, it would really benefit if you could expand on the, this because um, the glucosinolates need yeah. to be converted to isothiocyanates through that enzyme myrosinase. Yes which is available in our gut but it's widely variable it's also available in the plant itself so uh and you've got to be really careful about that especially if you're going if you're going to be cooking the plant or preparing it and so i'm wondering if you and, or taking the supplement you know those are all variables that need to be addressed and you looked at it and you've looked at these very carefully so i'm wondering if you can enlighten us on that
1: Sure, and yeah, we we did sort of forget to talk about that. It's a it's a great point. Um, when you when you, as you said, when you eat the plant, you, uh, or maybe we didn't say this. When you eat the plant, you crunch it up. You become a predator. You release myrosinase. You allow that myrosinase to act on the food, the tissue, as it goes down from mouth to the other end. Um, and there's some release of isothiocyanates, some production of isothiocyanates in a time-dependent and person-dependent manner. And when we study bioavailability, um, it's all over the map, and, it, and it, um, it's hard to predict who's going to do what. Your gut is full of microbes, as most people know nowadays, I think, and those microbes have myrosinase activity, and they will do the conversion so if if you are someone who doesn't like eating vegetables or doesn't like broccoli for example or broccoli sprouts many people don't Mm -hmm. and taking a supplement is a reasonable thing to do and and years ago i thought supplements were you know the the kiss of satan because i thought (laughs) i thought it was beholden on all of us to just eat more fruits and vegetables but look there are various reasons that that people don't and so uh, and as we get older, and, and many of us exercise less and eat less, uh, supplements I think are are, are smart. So, um, if you take a supplement of glucoraphanin or moringin for that matter, although I don't think there are any in the market, um, you're not supplying myrosinase. So some, but that's that's not necessarily bad. You just may need to take a relatively larger dose because you're still going to have the the bacteria in your gut, the the microbiome in your gut do the conversion. It is hard to tell how much conversion there'll be unless you do a urine test and a a chemical test. Um, So there are some supplements on the market now, um, uh, some of them good, some of them useless, I think, but there are some supplements that have myrosinase, active myrosinase in them, and those supplements Um, certainly give a a higher delivery or a higher rate of conversion of sulforaphane uh, to the person that's taking them. Um, They also tend to cost more. So it's a a bit of a balancing act and I don't think one's necessarily better than the other from, for the consumer. From a clinical trialist point of view, someone who wants to do clinical trials, um, you might argue that the supplements with, with myrosinase in them are better Although I would argue that from a clinical trialist point of view, we might as well just deliver sulforaphane and know exactly what we're putting in that person or getting that person to ingest.
0: Um, yeah, if you're going to purchase a supplement with myrosinase in it, would probably because it's an enzyme that can degrade, it'd be best to refrigerate it, would seem. Most appropriate.
1: Yeah, you know the other thing we didn't mention. Maybe this is good for another uh, another talk with you some other time. But we but we should talk about the fact that these. These compounds also protect against ultraviolet light. They're not sunscreens in the, mm. in the sort of traditional sense, but they actually—this is sort of the proof that they are whole-body effective. They—if you ingest them—they um, actually may protect against ultraviolet uh, erythema or reddening of the skin. This, mm. is, this is really a whole not a, a whole nother discussion, as it were. But. Um, yeah, there's a
0: carotenoid, uh, the most potent carotenoid, astaxanthin, which has a similar effect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So... Uh, but if you get me started
1: talking on that, we'll go on for another <laughs> <laughs> We'll save that for another time.
0: All right. Well, let's just tie this up on myrosinase, so uh, if you're preparing a plant like Broccoli and many people do enjoy it. There's a sweet spot for it. You don't want to undercook it. If you undercook it, you're not going to activate myrosinase. And if you overcook it, you'll denature the myrosinase. So, do you agree that that three to four minute window of a steaming is, you know, where it's just right texture is the, is the optimum to convert the myrosinase? Um, well, actually, three, three
1: to four minutes of microwaving or steaming. May wipe out the myrosinase.
0: Interesting. So,
1: yeah. So I mean, you, you, you may spare some, you may not. It's sort of it's sort of touching. What you will do. So the advantage to that is that you won't leach out. You you won't just blast the hell out of the broccoli, for example, and leach it at, leach out the glucosinolates. So remember, glucosinolates are water soluble. When mm-hmm. you start blasting, if you boil the heck out of broccoli, and you start Lysing cells that with dead myro with not dead but with inactive myrosinase, then the pot liquor or the liquid that accumulates in the bottom of the pot is going to have glucosinolates in them, and no one ever drinks the juice out of the bottom of a corningware dish full of broccoli after they microwaved it. But so, so eating raw, you could argue that eating raw cruciferous vegetables or moringa um, gives you well. It's not an argument it gives you active myrosinase and the degree to which you cook it will to some extent kill them or knock out the myrosinase Um, so i would say that moderate or very light cooking uh, or steaming um, will is fine but i i wouldn't argue that it spares all the myrosinase necessarily
0: All right, well that's a great answer and I want to thank you so much for your time and all your years of dedicated research to provide us with this valuable information and personally for inspiring me to start my Moringa patch. And I'm quite confident that I'll bet a large number of people, at least in the summer if they start them early and sprout them inside or something and then grow them outside, can harvest a crop of this Moringa uh, at least during the summer. It'll die in the winter, but that's okay, a lot of annuals do. So, yeah. But, but it, it, it's, I had no idea it was comparable to the benefits of broccoli sprouts, which is, and it's so, and if you just harvest the tops, you don't worry about the, the small leaves. You can put it in a smoothie and get the benefits because you're not heating it, but the, but you're mechanically disrupting it, which would release the myrosinase and, and, you know, drink it within 15, 20 minutes and you're golden.
1: Exactly. And I I have to, you have to allow me a little commercial plug here. It's It's not a commercial plug actually. It's a scientific, a scientifo commercial plug. So we're coming out, hopefully it will be accepted for publication with a paper in the next few weeks, I hope, in which we're using, um, moringa leaf powder and we're making teas of it. And the idea is to deliver this moringa leaf powder in a, in a, in a palatable format. And, um, so, I mean, I have three or four or two or three cups of moringa leaf tea every day um, as I'm working. It's, I'd rather drink that than, uh, well, I drink green tea also and black tea, but i uh, certainly rather drink it than coffee if I don't feel like I have to have caffeine. So there are various ways to, de- to deliver it. And those of your listeners who read scientific papers, keep your eyes peeled for a paper on moringa tea. Hopefully it's coming out soon.
0: All right, I'll put it on my list for sure. And uh, I would definitely go over that over the black tea because the black tea is also high in oxalates. And, I, and as far as I know, at least the last time I looked, Moringa was relatively low in oxalates. I, which I is so. Another major benefit because you know, oxalates is a pernicious plant toxin we want to stay away from.
1: Yeah. Well, moringa is also
0: extremely high in protein compared to any oh, yes. of
1: yes. your favorite uh, green vegetables. Um, yeah. leafy but green you're not
0: you're not eating like pounds of it. I mean, you probably have, what, 50, what's what's a therapeutic dose of moringa powder? 10 grams, 15,
1: 20? Uh, it depends on therapeutic how. So, I mean, there's enough protein so that if you eat- No, no,
0: no. For for the glucosinolates.
1: Oh, uh, 10 grams is certainly reasonable, but 10 grams of Moringa leaf powder gives you three grams of protein because it's that high. In wow, I did not know that. It's that high in protein. So the dried leaf powder, yeah, yeah.
0: So is there, is there any chance, we were talking about, talking about dosing, is there any chance of overdosing? Say you do 30 grams or 60 grams of the powder, two ounces. It's a lot. Probably we may destroy the taste of the smoothie, but would you get too much of the Moringa in that?
1: You know, it's, I suppose it's conceivable, but one of the beautiful things about eating vegetables, whether they be dried in smoothies or or otherwise, is that it's very difficult to eat too much. I I used to always use the example of broccoli. You know, we we said that if you ate um, a pound of broccoli a day, you'd get a really high dose of glucosinolate, glucoraphanin. Well, Most people can't eat a pound of broccoli because they they get bloated, they get Mm -hmm. stuffed, they get gas, so they stop. Um, Same thing with Moringa. It's got a harsh sort of horseradishy taste if you just eat the powder. So I dare say that if you
0: tried to chow down on a heaping salad bowl. You're gonna be limited by the taste. Okay, that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. All right, good. All right, thanks again. I really appreciate it. You've been a wealth of information. You'll continue to be so, and uh, really for providing research and uh you know information that's so profoundly beneficial to so many people so you've done a great job and you should get a medal for that so thanks again
1: it's my great pleasure thanks for having me on
0: all right